Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. I'm going to ask you guys to stand, and I'm going to read uh, the passage that I'm going to go through this morning. And um, we, we do this as a church to acknowledge that God's words mean more than my words or your words or any other words that are going to be spoken. Um, these carry more weight and that we are grateful for them. So I'm going to read this and say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond, thanks be to God. This is 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, in verse 6. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who, are, who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kind of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You guys can be seated. Uh, it's, so it's Thanksgiving week. Um, I've done this the last few years just because it's an opportunity during Thanksgiving week and because I think gratitude is hard for us and and underplayed, and so I'm stepping out of the series uh, on presence and talking about um, contentment this week, and in part because I think it's something that, that we all struggle with, and I think it's something that this week we'll, we'll probably be thinking about, either for good reasons, because we've got a little bit of time off of work, and um, it's kind of chilled out, and, and the holiday is Thanksgiving, and so uh, we're encouraged to reflect on what we have to be thankful for. Um, or we could be thinking about it for di- more difficult reasons because it's the beginning of the Christmas season and there's Black Friday and there's Amazon whatever day that is. I don't even know what next Monday is. It seems like every day is Amazon Prime Day now. And, um, and I don't get uh, social anxiety so much. I do get stuff anxiety around Christmas. Um, when, I, when my kids were little, I worked so hard, did so many things to try and convince my kids that Christmas wasn't about stuff, you know, because it's just, just shoved at us. I remember in college learning that 25% of our economy runs on Christmas. So that could be a reason that um, you're thinking about contentment this week or because um, you have family coming into town and after three or four days, you'll no longer be content with their presence in your house. And so there was a lot of reasons we could be thinking about contentment this week. And to start, let me just ask you a question, and I don't, want you, I don't need you to answer this, but in your own head, on a scale of 1 to 10, how content would you say that you are in general uh, in life? And I'm going to talk, talk, talk a little bit as you, as you consider this, because um, I read this years ago and used this from time to time. That someone said, you can be materially wealthy, but you can be emotionally and relationally and spiritually poor at the same time. And so contentment, I think, is the same way. You can be content in certain areas of your life and discontent in other areas um, of your life. So just how content do you think that you are? The opposite of that question might be, on a scale of 1 to 10, how restless are you? Or maybe how anxious um, are you? Because I think those numbers should probably add up to 10. How content are you and how anxious are you? Because they're similar. But um, I also think that there, for, for me, there are things... I can be like 70% content with life. But that 30% that I'm discontent about, like, feels like a thousand percent, you know? Like, it weighs so heavy on me. And so that makes me, you know, reflect 
um, as well on that. So I went through this exercise this week, and then I read um, a bit about the word that the Bible uses for contentment. And so this Greek word, this is how they describe it. The perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed, a mind contented with its lot. That's one, one description of it. Here's another one. Describes the person who is unflappable, unmoved by outside circumstances, and who properly reacted to his environment. Here's the third one. To be satisfied and sufficient, to seek nothing more than what one has. Okay, would anybody like to redo their ranking uh, after reading through those definitions? Because I had to. Um, if I learned one thing this week, it's that I am nowhere near as content <laughs> as I would like to think that I am, and that maybe I come back to preaching contentment and stuff a lot because I'm the one who needs to hear it. Uh, I read those things, and I can hardly imagine being in that state of mind for a long period of time. I think I'd have to ignore some things in my life for that, those descriptions to be completely true of me. I, I read through these things, and I think I'm not even sure if I think we should be content given the state of things maybe in our lives or certainly in our world. And so I wrestled a lot this week with how do, you, how do you be content without being passive in areas where you need to be active and how do those things relate? And then I thought, I'm not sure if someone waved a magic wand and said, You're con you can be perfectly content if I would want it. Um, and so I think this is true about a lot of things. You pick your poison, whether it's you know, materialistic desires or desires for security or lust or relationships or, or achievement or whatever it is, if someone could take that desire away from you, um, what would your, like, what space would it open up in you? And there's a, like, we kind of get addicted to the restlessness. Uh, I like watching sports too much. When COVID started for those first few months, everything sports shut down, it was amazing, you know? And so if someone could take the restlessness away from you, would you let them? So all these things are rolling around in my head as I consider how the Bible defines contentment. And so I'm going I'm to take three things out of this passage and a few verses that follow it in Timothy um, to, to speak into us this morning. And here's the first one. To be content, you have to let God de define enough. Um, God's the one that gets to define enough for you. And so in this, in this particular passage, Paul says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Um, there are times when the Bible is like confusing, just hard to figure out what it means and what it's trying to say. And then there's a couple, there's a couple lines in this, in particular, in this passage that are really clarifying and not hard to understand. And this is, this is one of them. This is Paul saying, here's the bar. If we have food and clothing, if we have, our, I think, our basic needs met, we will be, as those definitions laid them out, we'll be content with what the Lord has given us. That's a clear bar. That seems like a high bar. Uh, Paul, in another passage, says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every in every, any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need, and can be equally content in all those circumstances. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, he's let God define enough. 
and he's been content with whatever God has defined it as in whatever situation he's in in life. Uh, what is enough? Whatever God's given you. Uh, who, defines, uh, who defines enough for you? This question, I think you've got to roll around in your head for a while. What is enough? What would enough look like, and who defines it for you? Uh, is it Instagram? Is it Amazon? Is it your neighbors? Um, is it your family? Is it just the desires of your heart uh, that define enough for you? When he says food and clothing, I, I, like I spend a, a rest of the lot with how do you translate that to us, and I think it's like your basic needs met and not your indulgences met. Um, and so food and clothing for sure, shelter, safety, healthcare, things that are on the surface, those aren't indulgent things. They seem to be basic things. I think um, in our culture, like if you have kids, thinking about getting your kids through college, because not all kids need to go to college, but it, you know, it's a helpful thing in our culture, depending on what they feel called to do. And so is that indulgent? It's certainly not necessary, necessary, but it, but it doesn't seem indulgent. Retirement, I think if you want to retire at 50 and buy a Pacific Island, like that would be indulgent. I think if you don't want to be a burden on your family as you grow older, I don't think that would be indulgent. And so I think that can be a span of things. Um, but that says what those, when your basics are met, like there's where contentment is. And I think God's going to provide those things at different levels based on where we are and what he's called us to. Um, I read a line this week, and it was from Mark Twain, where he said, civilization is the limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. Civilization is the limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. And so I think that enough of, and the basic necessities is a really tricky thing for us to define given that we live in the most affluent culture in the history of the world, you know? So enough. I thought, too, if I don't have those things, do I then not get to be content? Um, is that a license to be discontent if the basics aren't met? And then I thought about the words of Jesus, and I think he cuts that off. He says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow and they don't reap. They don't have a storehouse. They don't have a barn. And yet God feeds them. And of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And so I think as he's working in the process of meeting the basic needs, we're still called to be content and not to delve into anxiousness because, um, because we don't feel like we're there yet. So I think he's called us to find good work that we're called to and then let him define enough. And when we don't, I think he'd call that unbelief um, and something that we need to take to him and honestly repent of. In the passage, if you don't let God define enough, I think he tells us what happens. And so he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Uh, and man, I... I don't know, it seems to me this works on a scale in terms of the desire to be rich, 
Um, that's not an all-consuming desire, but I'd be lying if I didn't, said I didn't have the desire to, to have more than what we have, you know? And again, this is a clarifying statement. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, they fall into a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I think that describes like a lot of what's going on in our culture right now, in our society, is that we've fallen into these traps and snares. Um, there was a, a book I read that I, I referenced a bit earlier in the fall where um, he quoted Aquinas, who was a Catholic theologian, saying, what would it take to feel satisfied? And Aquinas was, was a, a giant of a mind. And he's probably in the 12th century. This is the 12th century. What would it take to feel satisfied? Everything. Everything. We would have to experience everything and everybody and be experienced by everything and everybody to feel satisfied. And then he quoted Dallas Willard, who put it this way. He said, desire is infinite, partly because we're made by God, we're made for God, we're made to need God, and we're made to run on God. And because God made us in that way, and this leans back into a series on presence, where we're made for the presence of God, and in the absence of that presence, the way that it's supposed to be, we are going to feel incomplete. Because we're made for God, um, contentment is always going to be a problem unless we're looking for it in our relationship with the Lord. It makes sense that we have trouble being content when any, with anything less than that. And this author goes on and says, we can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We're only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains, but it's displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. Ultimately, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. Tragically, we continue to chase after our desires ad infinitum. The result, a chronic state of restlessness or worse, angst, anger, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, all of which lead to a life of hurry, a life of busyness, overload, shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of more, which in turn makes us even more restless and the cycle spirals out of control. To make a bad problem worse, this is exacerbated by our cultural moment of digital marketing from a society built around the twin gods of accumulation and accomplishment. Advertising is literally an attempt to monetize our restlessness. They say we see upward of 4,000 ads a day, all designed to stoke the fire of desire in our bellies. Buy this, do this, eat this, drink this, have this, watch this, be this. Again, appreciate the clarity in this statement. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction and just a life chasing after the wrong things, right? Now, if there's contentment in this ideal place where we're satisfied with what the Lord's given us and trusting in him, and then there's this trap that we can fall in over here of being rich, Part of what I love about this passage and how the Bible speaks about this is I think there's another trap on the other side where we think um, that God is, I don't I could figure out a good word, like that God is somehow a minimalist or God wants us to stow away on a desert island like Tom Hanks and cast away and see if we can get by with being friends with a volleyball and like having nothing, you know, that we can tend to spiritualize it and do that. But, but God doesn't 
he doesn't, that's not how he puts things. So later in this passage, a few verses down, it says, as for the rich in this present age, and that's, most of us would be categorized in the rich in this present age, charge them, charge them not to be arrogant, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of their riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there's some end of the spectrum over here where we think we're not supposed to have anything or enjoy anything uh, that doesn't exist. That's not where he wants us. His enough for you will not be nothing. (laughs) Um, And he does not want you to enjoy it begrudgingly because he gave it to you richly. I contrast this with the story of the rich young ruler. And so there's a story in the Gospels where a guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, and, and this is a good guy. This is a church-going guy or a synagogue-going guy or whatever it is in those days. And, and Jesus says, hey, you know the law. What does it say? And so the guy reads off the Ten Commandments and says all the right things. And Jesus says, yeah, that's it. Do this and you'll inherit eternal life. And the guy's like, sweet, I got it. And then Jesus is like, all right, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. <laughs> like just one more thing. And the guy walks away sad because he had a lot. Um, and we can tend to think then, well, if he said that, to, and I've, you know, you have people say this to you, shouldn't you sell everything you have? Because he told that one guy to. But he doesn't tell everybody to. He doesn't in this passage say, as for the rich in this present age, charge them to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. He doesn't. He says, charge them not to set your hopes on the stuff, but to set your hope on God's and know that God has richly provided you with everything to enjoy. The word richly, I think, is a, is a really interesting word to use in that passage. So uh, it means abundantly or copiously. It's used three other times in the New Testament, and these are those passages. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, Titus 3, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, And then 2 Peter 1, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He richly provided us with the Bible, with his word. He richly provided us with the Holy Spirit. He richly provides us with eternal life, and he richly provides us with good things to enjoy on the earth. God is not a miser, and so if there's a spectrum, there's contentment, and then there's falling into this trap of thinking, I need more and more and more, but there's also a trap on the other side that says God doesn't want me to have anything, Uh, and he wants us to live in that Um, to live in that tension. And if we do enjoy them, then it's going to hurt to give them up, you know? But if we love the way that God loves, it's going to feel great to share with people that have less. And so letting God define enough is sitting in the middle. It's not setting your hope on the stuff, but it's setting your hope on the God that provides you with whatever it is that you have. Um, Yet knowing the the stuff isn't the thing. Uh, the God who gave you the stuff is the thing. So to be content, you got to let God define enough. 
Um, here's, here's the second one. To be content, you have to consistently practice gratitude and generosity. So it's hard. I don't think it's impossible, but it's hard to be grateful and greedy at the same time. I can do it, right? But it's more difficult uh, when you're being grateful to be greedy or to be envious uh, of people around you while you're consistently being grateful um, to, for the things that God gave you. I sent out, I found this video a year ago. I put it in the, in the weekly email on Friday. It's 10 minutes long. I'd encourage you to listen to it. It's just a reflection of a pastor who decided to practice intentional gratitude. And, um, and these were some things that he said he learned. Gratitude breeds humility. And so when we're grateful in a biblical sense, there's an object to, for our gratitude. Um, there's always an object for your gratitude. And so, uh, you know, absent that, we end up thinking, look what I've done. Um, but gratitude calls us to be grateful to the one that's, that's given it to us. And the Bible calls us to this all the time. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that I, that I went through again this week where he, he tells them, be grateful for everything you have because God is the one that gave you the ability to, to produce anything in the first place. Like he dials it all the way back and all of it comes from God and we should be grateful to him for it. Gratitude improves our theology. We're reminded how, how good God is and how big God is when we're consistently grateful for the things that God has provided. He said gratitude improved his relationships. And so he said, if you took the three people that you're closest to, picked one thing you're grateful for about them every single day, and told them that. How would that improve uh, your relationships with the people around you? It would make a huge difference um, if we practice that and stop taking the people around us for granted so often. And he said gratitude protects us from those ditches of anxiety and greed. It's hard to think of a habit that would, pra- that would change you more than like just intentional gratitude. And he said when he started doing this, his expectation was that it would improve his like kind of a state of mind by, by a function of like 2 or 3%. And he said he found it was like 30 to 40% that improved, that it improved his state of mind. So we have to practice gratitude to, to be content. And we have to practice generosity. Um, so this passage, again, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Then he says they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. Um, it's worth spending a few minutes on those four things. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, and to ask yourself if that describes you. Um, we tend to, when it comes to being generous and ready to share, um, and I think that is a matter of what you focus on. Um, I tend to think that nobody really thinks they're rich because they can always find somebody that has more than them. Uh, like, I don't know who the richest guy is now, but Elon Musk, prob- Elon Musk probably doesn't think he's rich because uh, Bezos has more than him. You know, like I've got billions, but that guy's got twice as many billions as I do. And we tend to think about it that way. We tend to insulate ourselves um, from need because uh, we live in neighborhoods with people that, you know, do similar things to us. And um, 
and make similar money to us and live in similar you know, houses to us. Um, I think we tend to look now like, man, it seems like there's 10 times as many people on corners at stoplights asking for much and thinking, I don't know what we can do about that. Um, and it doesn't seem like giving someone a few bucks is gonna help. But we don't look into like what really might help. Uh, and so I, I think being generous and being rich in good work, works is, is itself work and takes intentionality. Now, God builds generosity into the system. And so in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God calls his people to give to the work of the kingdom, and he calls that the tithe. Um, in the Old Testament, it was the first fruits of your field or your flock, and so they would take whatever the first part of their harvest was. They wouldn't wait till the end, but the first part, and they would take it to the temple or to the tabernacle, to the priests. They would take the best of their flock, and they would give it to the Lord, and it'd be the first part of it. And it's a way of saying, God has provided this for me, and I'm going to trust that God will provide what I need. And I still think he calls us to, to do this. In those times, that would... You know, that would fund the work of the temple or the tabernacle. It would fund the work of the ministry. It would go into the storehouse to feed the poor, he called them. If it was their field, they would call them to leave, um, the, not to harvest to the edges of the field, but it was the gleaning law so the poor could come and take from the excess of what they had. And I think he still calls us to that. And it's a tithe, which means 10%. And We've gone over this over the years and, and can debate it, but I think God still, that's his principle, is that the first 10% of our income would go to the work of the Lord um, in one way or another. Most of us have way more than food and clothing. Most of us have way more than our basic needs, but we still have a hard time trusting God in this. And this is, it's, it's throughout the whole book, it's his built-in mechanism to help us from falling into the trap of the desire to be rich, he, he charges us to give the first part of it away, and that does so much to you. Like, it forces you to trust him in a very tangible way. It's easy to pray that you trust the Lord with a certain situation. It's harder when you're giving away something that you could really use, and he calls us to that. It forces you to acknowledge that he's the one that gave it to you in the first place, because as you wrestle with that, you know, you realize that. Um, sometimes you give what you don't think you can, and he provides in a way that you never thought he would or could. Like, out of the blue, provides. And he builds our faith that way. Um, in doing that, he reminds us that we have some unnecessary necessities um, and causes us to evaluate what we really need. And he reminds us that it feels really good to be generous because we're made in the image of a generous God, but generous does not come naturally um, to us. And so a lot of that ends up, I think that it, um, I've said this over the years, if, if you have been burned by a church or grew up in a bad church experience or whatever that is, you're new to church, and so giving to the church is a problem, we've got plenty of great organizations that you can give to. Um, if you don't have that, you haven't been burned, and, and you are a part of a church, this is your church or some other church is your church, uh, you should be giving 
significantly to the, to the, out of what God's given you to the work of the kingdom um, through your church. Uh, we did something years ago, um, and we haven't done it for a few years, but we asked people to, and we made it tangible. So we gave them a card that, that asked them to go home and have a conversation or pray through what does God want us to give so that we can, um, uh, I think it's easy just to, to not be thoughtful about that. And it's an easy conversation if you're married to avoid because <laughs> one person probably wants to have the conversation more than the other person does. And I think it's easy for our giving not to keep up with our making. And so we ask people to take a card home prayerfully consider what God wants them to give, and then to, to let us know, because practically it helps us as a church uh, figure out what our budget is going to be for the following year. It didn't help us in budgeting that much. It was a great tool to call people into the discipline of giving, and, um, and that is a very pragmatic discipline that is a, is a pretty good reflection of how you trust the Lord. So we're doing that again. We have those cards. They're in the back. And I would say this, if Oak City, if you consider Oak City Church to be your church, um, I would ask you to take one of those, spend the next week, two weeks, month, whatever it is, prayerfully considering what God wants you to do, and let us know. If Oak City is not your church, don't worry about it. If you're just visiting a church, please don't worry about it. Um, but we would ask you to do that. It has been... Uh, it hasn't been a great year for us financially. And part of that's coming through COVID. A lot of transition happened during COVID. We had some people step out. Um, some people that hadn't been here since the beginning of COVID, you know, during this year said, hey, we're, we're going to end up someplace else. We've had a lot of new people come. Uh, honestly, from a pragmatic standpoint, it takes newer families longer to get given when you've had families that have been here for years. Um, and in that, God has provided in ways that, God has never provided before, <laughs> and it's been um, spectacular, but if that doesn't, if our giving doesn't catch up, when the beginning of next, early next year, we're, we're going to be, we're going to have a little bit of a problem, and so we're appealing to you to consider uh, how God is calling you to give, and really, like in that, we're charging those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hopes on riches. Um, but on the God who has provided us with all the things that we have. And it's just a concrete way of reflecting, um, of reflecting that. Uh, he wants us in a place where we are letting him define enough, where we're enjoying the things that he's providing, but we're not these, the things aren't becoming the source of the satisfaction. The God who gave us the things is our source of satisfaction, and so we're ready to let go of those things. There's, that's a hard place to be, and there's a tension in that. Um, and that's what he's called us to. I'm going to, one last point here. We, to be content, we have to live this life in light of the next life. And so there's a couple things that are in this passage um, that I don't think I get very well and I don't think we get very well. So in the beginning of the passage, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we, can, we cannot take anything out of the world. We brought nothing into the world, we can't take anything out. And he's telling us, hey, don't forget all of this is temporary. And um, when we don't treat it that way, we're not living, when we're not living this life in light of eternity, um, I think we think the stuff is a lot greater than the stuff actually is because it's all we can see. And he's calling us not to do that. 
in the, in the following passage in verse 17 through 19, as for the rich in this present age, you go down to, to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so in that is a way of saying, here's the trap that you've fallen into is thinking that this is truly life. When in reality, like there's so much more than the stuff. And it's, it's just easy to play the he who dies with the most toys wins game without realizing that that's the game that you're playing. Uh, these passages stuck out to me this week. So 2 Corinthians 5, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, which is our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, not longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. In this tent we groan. And then again in Romans, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, and hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. We don't groan because we don't have enough stuff here. And I think that's what we tend to groan about, is if only I had that, um, or I got that promotion, or I lived there, whatever it might be. We groan because we know the stuff in the next life is so much better than anything that there is here. And it just occurred to me that I think we spend most of our time groaning about the wrong things because we don't live in this perspective um, that we're here for 80-some years and we're there for eternity. And God has told us there, like this doesn't compare to that. This is a shadow of the things to come. C.S. Lewis has a line where he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And... Um, there is a tension to living in that. There's a tension to living in this place of enough. There's a tension in having the things and enjoying the things and yet being ready to let go of the things at any moment and being sensitive to what God wants us to do with the things. Um, and there's a tension to, to living knowing uh, that there's something better than this. You may not realize until it's too late that you've given your life to the accumulation of a lifestyle, to the building of your own kingdom and your kingdom won't last instead of giving your life to the building of a kingdom that is going to last, which is what he's called us into. Um, I think these, these passages call us to the question, when, when we die, will we be leaving the things we treasure the most or will we be going to the things that we treasure the most? Um, so, and I'll, I'll finish with this verse, Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
I'm going to finish this. I'm just going to ask you guys to, to um, close your eyes and bow your heads um, as I finish off and I pray. There's a prayer that I mentioned um, that during sabbatical I started praying, and it's, I guess it's got four parts to it. And the first one is, this is the day the Lord has made. I will be glad and rejoice in it. Some days that's an easy prayer. Some days it's a hard one. The second part of it is uh, I'm going to pick up my cross and follow Jesus and share in the sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus because that's what he's called us to. Uh, the third one is um, I don't, I don't want to give away my life to the distractions that are around me, but to find my satisfaction in Christ. And that prayer has evolved to the point where it's not so much about the distractions of the world, but like asking God that I could completely find my satisfaction in who Christ is and what he's done for me, because that is what we're called to be satisfied with, is in Christ. And that inevitably gets me thinking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, about the gospel. And Jesus lived his life, and he didn't have, he didn't have stuff. The God of the universe that came, um, say, didn't, didn't have you know, a home to lay his, to lay his head at night. Um, he trusted God on a day-to-day basis to meet his needs. And yet he had the life. He didn't hoard stuff. He had the life that we were made to live and the contentment that we were created to live out of. And that's what he's called us to. Um, I thought about his death in our place, and I think oftentimes the stuff that we want, what we want is the esteem that comes with it. And in dying on the cross for us, he has shown us all the esteem that we would ever need and told us the truth about ourselves, that we are made in the image of God, but we are flawed by sin. And nothing we can buy will cover that up. Um, But the love of Christ will cover that up. And he's shown us that by dying on the cross for us. And then he rose from the dead and gave us the same spirit that raised him from the dead to point us forward um, to life that is truly life and given us a concrete reason to hope that this is a shadow of the goodness that is to come. Father, would you help us not to fall into traps, Lord? Would you help us to be grateful? Um, and to recognize just how blessed we've been. Would you help us to let you define enough, Lord? And would, by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would be, be content in enough? Lord, would we be rich in good works, God? Would we give um, not just our things away? Would we give our time? Would we give our energy? Would we give our emotion to the things around us, Lord, um, that you are doing, that are building your kingdom, that are working towards things that matter, Lord? And I just pray for conviction for, for each of us in an individual place that we need to be convicted, Lord, and surrender to you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.